This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Saddle Hunters, our brothers over at Tethered, continue to kill the game by releasing innovative products. They just recently put out the Eberhardt Series Saddle. They also put out the Menace Saddle, which is for our, our husky brothers and sisters that are into saddle hunting that does but that said, I'll do just maybe a little bit better job of cupping your quote-unquote assets. But the thing that I'm most excited about is their recent release of the Tethered One Climbing Stick. Um, this thing is crazy light, crazy strong, and crazy quiet. I'm just going to cut to the chase here and give you some specs. Each stick weighs in at less than one pound. And that includes your Dynalite rope attachment. Uh, a three-pack of these will weigh in at 2.7 pounds, which is ridiculously light. It's a 17-inch step-to-step uh, single stick uh, single stick height, and there's an 8.5-inch uh, step footbed, which gives you plenty of room for, for those of us folks with, with, with bigger feet. It's all made with aerospace-grade titanium and aluminum for construction. So if you'd like to learn more about Tethered's innovative products, head over to tetherednation.com and check them out. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 196. Today we are cranking up part number two of the aggressive bow hunting tactics hunting beast listener QA session with Dan Enfault. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine and hot damn. The season is here. I opened up 
uh, as I'm recording this on Sunday, I opened up yesterday and got a chance to get into the timber. And wouldn't you know, as luck would have it, we have a nice little chilly, um, chilly cold front kind of rolling through. Uh, I won't say maybe a cold front, but we've had a nice change in temperature that's starting to feel a lot like fall. Maybe we'll put it that way. It was a brisk 41 degrees yesterday morning, 41, 43 degrees when I woke up yesterday morning. I actually didn't go out and hunt the morning because there's a particular deer that I wanted to try to kill um, that I've mentioned in a previous podcast that I think I know where he's, I think I know where he's bedded. And just the, <clears throat> I just wasn't confident I could beat him back to bed and put it, put it that way. Um, and so I thought I would have better luck hunting, uh, hunting the evening than I would, than I would the morning. Um, and so that was, that was my plan headed into yesterday. So I didn't hunt the morning. Um, and this piece has some, some water access. So that was slick. It was a nice maiden voyage in the, in the kayak made my way in pretty decent hike to get into this spot, which I kind of forgot. Cause every time I've gotten to this place where I found where that deer was bedding, um, you know, I've taken a roundabout way to get there cause I was kind of scouting some other stuff. And so I, I, it never really dawned on me that from boat to setup area, I'll say setup area was about, it was almost a mile. It was like eight tenths of a mile. So, and it's through some gnarly stuff. So it took me a while to get, uh, to get into, to get into where I wanted to set up. It was probably a good 45 minutes to an hour to, to get there, trying to go slow, trying to go, be quiet, of course, especially as I got closer to where, you know, I thought he was, he was betting, but the moral of the story yesterday was it was a ground hunt. Um, you know, I was hoping to have a little bit of wind when I got in there to try to get into a tree for a little cover sound, but you know, all day I was outside kind of getting ready, you know, and had some things to do outside before I left to go hunt. And it was nice and windy. And I'm thinking, man, this is perfect. I just, if this wind will keep up, it'll give me enough cover sound to be able to climb into a tree because I felt like where I wanted to set up, I might be able to actually get a vantage point into the area that he's bedding in and might actually be able to see him. But it, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know, is like, as soon as I, you know, get out of the boat and start hiking in, I mean, the wind just completely died and it, there was nothing. So I ended up uh, hunting from the ground, had a good setup. Um, but unfortunately, you know, yesterday I, I ended up having to deal with just a little bit of pressure um, and some things that kind of occurred during the hunt um, that, that kind of uh, made it less, made it less than ideal. I, I don't think the game is over in that spot necessarily. Cause it wasn't like, you know, uh, the pressure I was dealing with, it didn't blow deer out it was just more of a, an inconvenience that I need to kind of think about how to, how to get around. Um, and really what it was, was just, you know, someone who wasn't too far off, which I knew where they were going to be. Cause I knew generally where their stand was at. They have a couple, two stands in this general area that are, that are lock on. So they're not moving. So that's always good. Cause I know I can hunt around them and kind of use their pressure, their access to my advantage, which is what I was doing yesterday. Uh, but they were doing a, a, a lot of, um, very loud blind calling yesterday. Um, that was just kind of, uh, what I was presuming was probably going to keep deer movement to, to a minimum, um, especially this time of year, because I don't think deer are going to react favorably to it. I've not seen deer react favorably to it in general in Pennsylvania, um, you know, rattling antlers and stuff like that. And for me personally, it's, it's, uh, early in the game for those types of, those types of tactics, at least in, in, in my book. So, you know, I sat and, uh, kind of, you know, played out the sit. And then eventually I had a, I had a camera there that was set up over, uh, over a scrape. And I wanted to see what inventory was hitting that as I was getting ready to call the hunt. Um, and so I checked that. And the good news was, is that there is a, one of the two big deer. I couldn't tell cause I forgot my card reader and I forgot an extra SD card, which is a rookie mistake. And I checked that camera and just used the viewfinder on the front of that camera. And, um, was able to see, uh, it looks like it, one of the two bigger deer that are, that were in that area are hitting that scrape. Um, so that was good news. And so that was kind of the hunt yesterday, had a good, 
you know, good entry, good exit. The hunt itself was a little less than ideal. I'm gonna have to kind of rethink how I approach hunting that general spot uh, to try to avoid avoid folks. And it might be one of those things where I need to I need to pay more attention to that area maybe during the week and try to figure out how to get in there. You know, not on Saturdays, um, and then maybe another general area on on Saturdays whenever there's going to be some other folks uh, other folks in that general area. But all in all. Super stoked that hunting season's here. Um, you know, that's kind of the game, uh, name of the game here, you know, at least hunting public land in Pennsylvania is that you have a plan um, and then usually pretty quickly your plan gets blown up um, because you're sharing, you know, these pieces with a lot of, a lot of folks just driving, driving by, you know, there was a lot of pressure on a lot of pieces, which I kind of expected given that the weather was as nice as it was, had a nice, you know, cold day, brisk fall day. Um, I truthfully kind of look for, you know, this time of year, especially early in the season when I might have a deer that I think I know where he's at, I'm really looking for warmer temperatures because that'll keep folks out uh, a lot of times or just bad weather in general uh, for these Saturday hunts. During the week, doesn't matter to me, um, but on weekends, it's like I usually like to have uh, bad weather, whether that be, whether that means it's rainy or whether that means it's abnormally hot where people think deer, deer movement's going to be less so they, so they stay out of the woods because the weather isn't good. Um, I always kind of look for those days, but regardless bow season is here and I'm super stoked about super stoked about that. And we'll, uh, I'm going to try, I think to get a couple morning hunts in and a couple places where I think I could have some opportunities in the morning, um, this week before work. So we'll see how those play out. But with that, we're going to keep this up front short today. Uh, have the last episode of the hunting beast DIY or the hunting beast listener Q and a, uh, podcast series. Uh, it's been killer having Dan on for these. I think it was eight episodes. Um, this is part number two of our aggressive bow hunting tactics uh, session that we did with, uh, uh, with one of our fellow beast members, um, had a great conversation with these guys. This is an in progress pickup of the part number one. So if you haven't listened to part number one, go back and listen to episode 194 to get this from the beginning. And with that, I hope everyone out there who has already had their opener, I I hope you had good luck. If you haven't opened yet, hang on just a little longer. It's almost here. And then once you do hit the timber, I wish all of you the best of luck as always. Thank you all for listening. All right. So I think, uh, I think that's a good, I think we wrap that one up. I think we'll move on to the next question. Uh, this, he touches on something that I think we covered a little bit about just like, you know, beast hunting and how you have to adapt and and stuff like that. But I think he's asking more of like a tactical question. So we'll, we'll go ahead and tee this one up. He says, you know, after all the years that you've, you've spent teaching, you know, the beast style hunting to, you know, new hunters and, uh, that are learning the style, you know, what in your opinion or in your experience has been the, the hardest part of beast tactics for someone to, to pick up or to overcome. Is it learning bedding? Is it understanding thermals or, you know, not playing the wind correctly from your perspective? What is that hardest part to kind of get, get right? Or maybe, maybe it's even the part that once you get right, things start to fall into place for you. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I think it's, um, uh, getting to the point of belief and believing in the, in, uh, the system. I mean, if you go in there uh, and half-ass it and you don't uh, believe in what you're doing, you don't have the confidence, um, really getting over the hump. I mean, uh, I think a lot of guys go in and they um, they go scouting in the spring because we push that a lot. Mm-hmm. And they'll find some bedding area that's like textbook right where we say it'll be and it'll be just tore up with rubs and stuff. There'll be beds all over the place, heavy trail going on, easy setup, and they'll think, Oh, I got it made and they'll, they're clear on a stand and they'll think, you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to kill that deer next year. No problem. 
and they go out there and they don't kill that deer and they're, they can't understand why. I mean, the veterinary was tore up, you know, all that stuff. And what they got to realize is I hunt a spot like that just about every evening. I went all last year and didn't kill a deer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, that's not to say I didn't have opportunities, but you don't, you don't, um, those spots might look great and they don't always pan out. You you can't just uh, count on one of them. Sometimes they look excellent and the deer just aren't bedding there to time frames that you're hunting. Really getting down the timing of when deer bed in certain spots. And uh, we touched on that earlier um, in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you brought it up, Clint, um, that you, re- you really, as you get better at this, you start to understand that there's a time frame mm-hmm. when deer use each bedding area. And even the primary bedding areas that they use all year, there's specific windows of like, a, you know, four or five days a week when it's really got peak use with, with, with a more dominant buck. Um, and once you get to know that stuff, you can start killing bucks out of those bedding areas year after year. And I've got several bedding areas where I've killed bucks for years. And I've got, uh, and some bedding areas turn out to be kind of like a nursery. Uh, mature bucks will only pick certain bedding areas to use. So they'll rotate through, through certain bedding areas. And that's not to say they never bed in, in some spots. But what you'll find out is some spots um, look good, and they got a lot of beds, but it's all young bucks. I mean, you don't you right. don't see one over two years old, you, you know. And and really getting the big picture down and understanding it is is the big thing. And not overhunting the spots. A guy finds a good spot, finally kills a deer, beast style, and then you know he looks at the other spots. He's like, well, I don't have any other good spots. He just keeps going back to that spot. Now that spot was bad on him. Right. You can't overhunt those spots. You know, um, if a guy doesn't have the timing thing down, I think what he needs to do is do like, uh, throw a hunt at it early season, throw a hunt at it rut, throw a hunt at it late season. Don't hunt it any more than that or you'll burn it out. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, I mean, Tim, as a, as a person who is, you know, what we'll refer to as, well, I guess you, you and I beast disciples, <laughs> if you will. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, for you, you know, as you were adopting this approach, like you know, it, it's, I think it'd be interesting to get your perspective on, you know, what were some of the challenges, you know, or the hardest parts to grasp for you as you were, as you were kind of adopting this way of hunting. So I was going to answer this a certain way until Dan talked about belief mm-hmm. and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm a very, very like methodical person. Um, I have to kind of envision in my head. I have to kind of see the process unfold. I got to see how this is going to work. Um, I think about logistics, I think about timing, I think about distance, I think about a lot of things when I'm, when I'm going in. And when I started learning about like mobile hunting and setting up a stand every single time and um, picking a new spot every single time and some guys go a mile, some guys go three miles, you know, it's like, how do I get a deer out? You know, so I'm already thinking about all those different things and I'm like, and you got to believe that you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, you got to believe that this can be done. And, um, and I think that's where, where it started, started for me. It's like when you, when I decided to, you know, start doing mobile and start, you know, targeting specific gear and going, you know, being a certain type of hunter instead of one that was, you know, okay with going to the same stand every single time, mm-hmm. you know, sitting sitting behind a bait pile and there's, you know, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hunters out there. There's nothing wrong with that though. But, but, uh, to knowing you can do it and to not be afraid. That's, yeah. I mean, that was, that was huge for me. 
Um, cause I hunt, I hunt by myself a lot of the time. And I think just to, you know, get that, that fear out of you a little bit they, of the unknown that, mm-hmm. you know, you just keep going. Um, up by us, a lot of guys, they're a little, they're a little afraid of the predators, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, you're back, you're back two miles and the wolves start howling. It's kind of a scary feeling, you know, at the, you know, but you get used to it. Right. And so it's, that's kind of, that's kind of one of those things. You just gotta, all these little things that are, you know, all those excuses, that are keeping you at home and keeping you from, you know, becoming a better hunter. You got to believe and you got to keep going. Yeah. You got to uh, get past that. Yeah. I, I totally, I totally agree with you. You know, and it's the fear of like, it could be many, anything, right. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of not knowing what's going to happen next. And, you know, I, I think for me, tactically, like the two things for me, like once I started kind of getting over the hump was, you know, one reading maps, like if I were going to be tactical about it, it was like understanding how maps are going to help me and being able to do my work, you know, from, you know, maps versus boots on the ground. Like once I got comfortable being able to understand what the land was going to kind of look like when I got there, before I got there, like that for me was a big hurdle. And then it was really like trusting and having that belief, like you said, in cutting the wind the right way to where it's like I was going to give the deer the wind. Like once I got comfortable in the idea of that, then I started kind of seeing even more of the results. But the one thing as you were talking, Tim, that I wrote down and this might be a little bit of like a hocus pocus, a little granola or hippie maybe even, but I put, I wrote down, you know, once I, once I learned or began to value the experience more than the outcome, that's when it all started clicking for me. Like once I started believe, once I started valuing the process and not the outcome of the hunt, because you're going to come home 1% of the time with a tag filled. You know what I mean? Like that's in many, for many people's hunts because they maybe they only can hunt weekends and they work and they take a trip or whatever the case is. I mean, most guys, you know, it's probably a 1% chance. Like, and that's probably a pretty realistic number. Um, and so if you get that out of your mind, that the out, the only outcome that matters, the only thing that matters is like filling a tag. Once you remove that and the value is in the process of learning and setting yourself up for success then all of a sudden like the things start clicking and you become less afraid of failing all the stuff we talked about earlier. And you start seeing those small wins, Dan, like you talked about that you're winning even whenever you, when most people would look at you as failing because like there's something to learn there. There's something to stack on top of the past on top of the past experience to set you up for the next one. And so that's kind of the way I think about this style of hunting and what it's taught me and what it's meant to me. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it was a little granola. Sorry, I got a little hippie there, but <laughs> it, uh, but uh, it but no, I mean it was truthfully like once I it took me a minute to kind of realize that, and once I did, I was like, this is um, this is why I'm starting to have success because I'm, tr- I'm I'm valuing the right parts of it, you know. So and I think that's important for, for me too. Um, I I saw when uh, when success wasn't the obsession anymore. Uh, hunting became a lot more fun. Yeah, and yeah. and. Uh, I, I mean, it's hard to say to a guy um, because if a guy hasn't hasn't killed a buck or he's only killed one or something or two uh, good bucks, it's really hard to tell him, oh, it doesn't matter if you kill a buck because to him it does because he's trying to prove something. Right. You know, once you get to the point where you got nothing to prove and you, you really don't care what other people think, you know, and, and if you, know, you don't want to shoot a buck, you do, you do it because of what you feel instead of what you think other people will think of you. Yeah you become a, a much better, much rounded, more rounded hunter. And I've seen that with women a lot. 
mm-hmm. um, not to be stereotypical, but you see a lot of women that get into hunting because their husbands are in or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they out hunt their husbands because they really don't care if they shoot a big buck or whatever. You know, right. they, they pass right. all the little ones and they, they just, you know, they just go out and have fun and it starts happening for them. Yeah. Where if you put too much pressure on yourself, I mean, I've seen guys, but they just fall to pieces when a big buck finally walks out because they can't take the pressure because they've been waiting for that moment for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once that's over and, you know, it's much better. Not to mention, I mean, if you're, if you, you're not used to seeing big bucks and stuff or gear, um, you talk to these guys and they come out of the woods and they tell you, yeah, you know, I saw a good buck go through over here, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, uh, well, which way was the wind going? I don't know. <laughs> right. what, what was, you know, what was this doing? You know, what was, uh, you know, they don't know anything. They don't even know exactly where the deer was. They're just staring at a deer. They saw go past, you know, right. where I'm, I'm using every moment I see like that as a learning experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think it's interesting that you point out like the, the idea of, you know, the females will out hunt their, you know, or their wives will out hunt their husbands and stuff like that. And I think there's, I think there's like a lot of validity to that because there's not a social construct at which they're trying to keep up with the Joneses in that arena. You know what I mean? It's like, they're just right. out having a good time, having fun and, right. and they're not being, just right. They're not trying to, you know, open their tailgate at, you know, Casey's, you know what I mean? Hanging out with the deer, hanging out there for everyone to drive by to see it. You know what I mean? Like that's not, that's not their game. They're out, they're out there to have a good time and relax. Maybe, you know what I mean? Enjoy the outdoors or whatever the case is. And because that they become a lot more receptive of what's going on around them. You know what I mean? Because you're open to it as opposed to over, like thinking yourself out of, out of the opportunities, if that makes sense. Um, but all right. I think we answered that one pretty well. Uh, this next one is a really short one. Um, uh, does the bump and dump really work? Dan, I think you're the perfect person to ask, ask this question. So (laughs) (laughs) it's i I've tried it. I, I will, I will admit, I will say that I've tried it and, um, it damn near worked last year. Um, just the wrong deer showed back up, but you know, your perspective, like I want to get your, your answers, you know, straight on this one, as far as like, does it work? And then, you know, beyond that, how are you executing something like this? If you're going to try to make it work? Okay. Uh, it's a complicated question, um, because it works, but you got to take that with a grain of salt because, um, I mean, you get a cushy land, you know, where it's well-managed and stuff. Deer don't get a lot of pressure. It works a hell of a lot better than it does on public or pressure land. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, I have bumped and dumped deer. I've never done it to a, 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 a mature buck. I've never done it to a real good buck. Mm-hmm. I've done it to smaller bucks and not shot them. I've done it uh, where I've gone in and kicked doe groups out and they've come back and I shot one. Mm-hmm. Um but I have done it with mature bucks and had it fail hmm. on several occasions. And usually it's because they come back sneaking, wired, you know, staring at the sky, you know, worried. Um, uh, I remember um, one time when it worked and you get a kick out of this. Um, there's a, a way to get into this one public woods where, you get along this canal and you go way back and then you spread out into the woods and then you can go through that woods and get back to all these other areas. And I was hunting back in that area and trying the different bedding areas, like hunting an area down. But every time I went back there, I had to take this canal back there. And I walked on this canal the first day 
and about a 140 inch buck jumps up from a bush, you know, that's kind of floating in an isolated water spot, stares at me a second and runs off. And I'm looking at that. I'm like, hmm. Sean was getting here in the morning and, and hunt that spot. And I'm thinking, ah, he ain't never coming back. Next day I go through there and that buck jumps up again. <laughs> and I'm kicking myself thinking, I should have hunted there. He came right. back, you know. <laughs> and uh, the third day I'm thinking I'm an idiot. Right. <laughs> and he jumps up. <laughs> and the fourth day I wasted a morning there and he didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, you gotta, you gotta believe in it. You gotta do it. I mean, um, my best success on that actually hasn't come from the next morning. It's come from the same day. Really? Kick a deer out of his bed and area. And, um, if you, you saw bump them, a lot of times they, they trot off and an hour, hour and a half later, they come sneaking back. The trouble with it is, is they come in from downwind. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I did it with the Rome, the Rome legend buck the year before I shot him. I jumped him out of a bedding area and I split him with a doe. And I thought for sure he'd come back because the doe went one way and he went the other. And it was a uh, pre-rut and he did, but he got downwind to me blue and took off. And hmm. I'd have probably been better off if I hadn't set up there and I let him come back and get back into a routine and then tried to hunt him in the area again. Right. Cause then he got really hard to hunt. But, uh, I did it on a, um, an island one time I went in to hunt and uh this is more early season and up jumps this monster and, and trots into the swamp and I knew he didn't see me and I knew he didn't smell me he just heard me coming through the grass and he got buggy and I thought there's a good opportunity there so I got into a tree where he went into the swamp and I sat there and um, a couple hours later he came in and he got to 20 yards and there was a, a thick bush in front of me. I think he just got some wind swirl or something because all of a sudden he just blew and took off out of there. Right. And I had the wind in my favor, but it was probably like a little uh, little thermal draft when it got calm, he got or something and, 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 and busted me. Right. But uh, that's the thing. I mean, they come in and they try to catch some air current or wind or something and they try to smell that it's safe before they come in. So I think in, um, the best way to make that scenario work, if you're going to do it the same day, is to um, really try to figure out how that deer is going to come in downwind and what he would do if he was going to circle in there to make sure you're not there and hunt it downwind instead of hunting right over the top of it. Right. That's you, probably the number one thing, if mm-hmm. you can do that. Um, um, if you're going to do it in the morning, I mean, that's a tough gig too, but um, you know, maybe it works one out of ten times. And then out of that one out of 10, when it happens, then you got to execute correctly too on a deer. That's a little bit nervous about what happened the day before. Right. Right. So I think it happens a lot less on public land. And the reason I say take that with a grain of salt is because I've been, you know, pounding big bucks on public land my whole life. And I have not executed it on a good deer yet. And I've tried. Right. Um, The only ones I know of that were killed were killed on private pushy land kind of thing you know right right tim have you uh have you tried the old bump and dump and uh if so what was your uh what was your net score on that no i haven't had any experience with uh you know bumping the big one um in the big woods mm-hmm. um and i don't know if that's because i mean whether if i'm not setting up close enough to them or um they're just not there a lot of the time but uh you know i think it's situational and you got also got to read how the, you know, 
what the deer does and where the, where the, where the deer's headed, what the wind's doing. Um, and I mean, and if you think it, you know, you know, you should set up or set up where you think he's going to go, you know, maybe backtrack a little bit, Mm kind of like what Dan was saying, but, uh, you're going to do it the next day. I mean, you know, you think, well, what do you have to lose? Right. I mean, you know where he was, right. You have that information and, and, and if he's there, you know, like, like Dan kicked the, you know, that buck out three days in a row. Well, um, I mean, you, you won't know unless you try. Right. Yeah. I so, mean, so I wouldn't, you know, to, to answer, you know, this guy's question, does the bump and dump work? Like, I guess, you know, it, it depends, I guess, is how I'd answer that. I wouldn't say it's a yes or no thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I, I gave it the old college try twice this year. Um, both times were in Iowa on public land. And I jumped a big deer out of a drainage or out of a draw and some CRP. Um, it was like a hedgerow in the middle of the CRP field where it was, you know, a low spot. Um, bumped him out of there. I didn't expect him to be there or I should have, but when I real when I was walking up on it, I realized too late that it was a, a great betting opportunity. And he was looking at me as I was climbing glass on the other side of the CRP to make sure I wasn't going to, you know, blow any deer out. Um, had the wind in my face, but he was also, you know, looking that way because he was watching, you know, downwind or, you know, he was watching his backdrop. So he, he busted me and blew out of there. And so I ended up setting up in that bedding area waiting for him to come back the next morning. And, yeah. he, ne- and he never did, um, had a small buck walk in and, and that was it. And then the deer I ended up killing, it's like, I'm not taking credit for a bump and dump on that one because it was the next, the last day I scouted a bunch and was trying to figure out where that deer that I'd missed previously was at and scouted over a couple ridges down, you know, through a couple draws and came up on this, you know, uh, on, on top of this like ridge near this lake and blew a deer out, blew a buck out. And I don't know what buck it was. I thought it was the buck that I had missed previously. You know, it could have been the deer that I shot. I'm not sure. I set up that evening, a couple young bucks came in. I let it go in the morning. Um, just cause I wasn't confident I could get in, in there, particularly if he was on his way back to bed. I, did, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to beat him or the does that he had been with back to bed. So I gave them kind of the morning to move and do what they were going to do. And then I slipped in right around, I don't know. I think it was like 11 o'clock and then shot a buck at three 30. Now I don't know that it was him coming in, you know, the deer that I shot or if it was the buck that I had been chasing, but I bumped the buck out of there and ended up killing a buck the next day out of the same spot, which is why I'm not mm-hmm. claiming it as a bump and dump. But you know, that was kind of my, my, my theory or my, my approach was like, if there's deer in there and, and cause I had seen him there a couple of times, I just couldn't get, the right opportunity. I was like, if he's there, I'm going to just move him out of there or whatever's in there out of there. And then I'm going to set up there. Cause I think it's where I need to be. And and that's how it played out. So, so I think to your point, you know, um, I'm sorry, on, go, go ahead. On that same topic, there, there is something I've done that's similar that has worked out for me very well. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you have to really know an area well. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, now I've gone into, um, like certain areas where I know all the bedding, Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of transitional bedding, like on edges and stuff. And I'll walk an entire edge. Like one spot I'm thinking about is a um, a round cattail marsh that has an island in it, but you got to go through like waist deep water to get to the island. And you know, usually gun season, there's some guys out there, you know, or rut or something. But you know, you usually don't get too much pressure there. Right. And it's got a good bedding point off the front of a good primary bedding area. And what I'll do is is um, I'll walk the perimeter of that uh, that marsh, the edge, 
and you have bucks that bet on the transition line, and the betting areas are there. You know where they're at, but you're not real good, and the odds of shooting one off one of those betting areas are hard because they could be one of 30 of them, right? Mm -hmm. But I'll just walk right through all those betting areas. And then the next day, I'll go walk through all those betting areas. And the next day, I'll walk through all those betting areas. And then I'll go hunt that island. Hmm. And without without fail, that's paid off just about every time I do that. Nice. So you're basically moving. So, I mean, you could force the deer into a, a, an area. I mean, they're not going to leave the... Right. They're not going to leave the, the area. So you're just kind of soft bumping them to get them in, in a position where you can where you can hunt them. Yeah, and then don't hunt it the same day you push them, because a lot of times they'll just move height quick and just bed some birds random to height till darkness or whatever. Right. But the next day they're not going back to that same bed, so they go settle into one of their other bedding areas. And in that case, that's a really good bedding area, and it's kind of hit or miss. I mean, uh, over the years I probably had like a one in five odds of seeing a deer come out of it. But whenever I do that, where I bump it for two days and then go hunt it. Right. I always see a nice buck there. Nice. All right. So I think, uh, Tim, are you okay on time? I know we're getting up on close to about a, an hour yeah. and a half. Do you have time for a couple more? Dan, are you all right? I'm yep. good. You're good. You sure your rac- raccoons don't need, don't need you. <laughs> they're, they're, they're all off by the windows looking in the house for me, but uh, yeah. they're okay. <laughs> nice. All right. So this fellow here asks, you know, I think just simply here, what he's really looking for is, you know, he's hunting an area that has some often is often having some standing, standing crops. And I ran into this actually last year. So this is selfishly, it's like, I, I'm interested in the answer here. You know, what is your approach whenever you have an area that, you know, is, or can be good, or there's good deer in there or whatever the case is, but you know, maybe the corn hasn't come off. Maybe it's been really wet you know, the early part of the year and they can't get the tractors in there to, to take the corn off. How do you, how are you hunting areas where, where crops are standing a little longer than you'd like? I actually like the corn standing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only time it's a hindrance is if you're gun hunting over open fields, which I don't really do much. So for me, when corn standing, I think the deer are a little more, uh, feel a little better about moving, uh, and on one of the edges. I think a lot of people think that deer bed in the corn. I don't see that a lot. The only places I really see uh, big bucks bedding in, in cornfields a lot is where cornfields have uh, openings, like grassy openings in them, or uh, you know, a clump of trees in the cornfield, like an island, like you'd have in a swamp or something. Right. Because um, otherwise, they don't have the safety factors that they need. Um, you know, a coyote could run down a a, a corn row right up to them. You know, just one row over. Um, they have to have some sort of safety feature to wind to the back, and you know, a transition line and so they don't bed in the corn as much as people think, but they feel a lot safer around it. And I do really well on the edges of corn if it doesn't get a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so corn being up, I actually like it. Okay. I think a lot of uh, the the bad thoughts on it are missed. I mean, you see deer go in and out of the corn a lot. Well, they're eating corn. You know, and they'll go in there and eat it during the day if they're bedding right on the edge of it and stuff too. So when they come out, I think a lot of people think they're bedding in there but I really don't see mature bucks as much bedding in there as, as you do does or, or younger deer. Right. So I don't think it's a hindrance as much as what people make it out to be. You just don't see as many deer because you're not seeing them wandering around the field because there's corn in the way of seeing them, right. you know? Right. Um, but they're there. And I think, uh, I don't think that the corn hinders you at all. I've done quite well in standing corn, hunting the edges of them. Hmm. 
Tim, what about you, man? You have, is this something you run into anywhere you're hunting or is just like, there's not much of that around where you're, where you're at in those big wood settings. You got to drive probably a good hour or so to get a, get to a cornfield from where I am. So, um, so I don't have a lot of experience to hunt, hunting the farm, hunting the crops. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that hopefully that's going to change. Um, in my mind, if I think I would, you know, what I would do is first just find out where, you know, where they're bedded. I mean, you, you know, your food sources or a potential food source, mm-hmm. find where they're bedding and set up based on which way you think they're going to travel to that food source. Right. That's, I mean, that's kind of like what I would think. Right. Yeah. I think what I was running into last year a little bit, there was a standing cornfield that in the past, the year that I had a couple really good bucks in this swamp. And when I say swamp, it's about 25 acres. It's in suburbia, right? So there's houses around it and so forth. And there, the year that I had some really good bucks in there, it was a bean field. Last year it was a cornfield and there was, there was, I saw like nothing on, on truck cameras. I saw nothing, mm-hmm. you know, much for sign, but it was also a very wet year last year. And so the places where I knew where there had been beds were then underwater. And I, so I think in that instance, cause Dan, it does have, I had driven by it a couple of different times to kind of get a visual of it this uh, past um, uh, winter and in, in early spring, since the crops were off, I wanted to get a better visual of the field itself and how it laid out. And there are some of those like open grassy spots and there's, and there's actually a couple like hedgerows in it that kind of divide up this field into mm-hmm. kind of chunks or whatever. And so I think what ended up happening was that they got moved out of those beds that were on those swamp edges that I'd found and that they ended up, you know, getting displaced. And so some of those deer either displaced and took the next line of bedding, which then kicked those other deer that were using that next line of bedding into like the cornfield to bed in those, you know, under those yep. solo trees and stuff. And so I think that that's what was happening. So I th- for me, I think after, thinking about it, I think it was a couple things. I think it was the wet, you know, wet year and you know, the fact that there was standing corn, which gave them another bedding opportunity. So, um, this year I think it's back to beans. So I should hopefully be in business in, in that particular area. Um, this next question, um, is another one I'm interested in. So this, this fellow writes in and says ground hunting, thick bedding areas, you know, um, when there are no trees to set up. And of course, you know, he said, you know, give him problems, I gave him problems last season. So do you have any tips for ground hunting? Some of these really, you know, kind of thick gnarly areas, Dan, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Any approach that you like I to take? I try to get the trees, even if the trees are small, mm-hmm. um, if possible, I think you get so much of an advantage from being elevated, but, uh, you know, ground hunting is hard. I mean, you just have to try your best to stay downhill for one thing, because the thermals are going to go downhill once it gets to the evening time. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to stay downhill, um, and trying to really get some good cover where you can see that deer before he can see you and prepare, because if, it, if, if the deer is going to come out kind of by surprise, cause you're in thick cover, um, they'll bust you out of 10 times. So right. having where, you know, they're going to come from and you're going to, you're going to get a clear view of them before they have a chance to see you it is huge. Right. Um, um, getting into a fallen tree or something, you know, ghillie suit or something they'll, they'll spot something out of place in, in their bedroom like you wouldn't believe mm-hmm. um so you really got to be careful how you set up but uh, and how you move and everything else but uh, it is tough no doubt about it right tim are you you know the big woods are you doing any ground hunt, uh ground hunting in some of those you know thicker areas you know in the in the big woods i don't make a point to go and uh hunt from the ground but a lot of guys do it and it's probably something I'll get 
into more as I, as I learn my areas. Mm-hmm. I think um, what's really important is you got to know you got to know your area, you know, pre- pretty well. Um, you got to know where the bedding areas are. Um, it really helps if you have your your Onyx up or whatever, so you can see your GPS, so you can see where you are and how far you are from things. Um, one, you know, one tip I think that might be overlooked is uh, move slow when you're setting up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's so easy to get into a rush, um, and we we forget, you know. You know that being noisy, you know, and you could blow your hunt before it even starts. Yeah. Um, setting setting up, I mean, you gotta you gotta remember, you know, you're hunting, and you're out there to kill something. Well, um, you don't, you know, if you ever see a predator, you you never hear them, you you see them, you know, before anything. So I think you know taking it slow, and uh, you know being methodical about it, knowing where you're stepping each time, mm-hmm. I think that's important. You know, watching where you're walking, and you know, and as you walk, you know, in front of you, kind of, you know, see your route as you're going to step through. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. I think it's one of those things. You know, ground hunting is something I'm going to try a little bit more this year. One thing that I've done, you know, in full transparency, to try to make it a you know, the alert. birds, or the squirrels, or whatever. Yeah, I, I, but I think you know, ground hunting is it's you know, just taking it slow is really important. I think um, can't really stress it enough. Right. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm going to do to try to make it easier on myself as I'm adding ground hunting this year to a degree is, um, I'm, I'm trying to focus on places where I know I'm going to have to have a ground set up and I'm trying to kind of prep the setup just a little bit, you know what I mean? Or it's, or it's near like a, a scrape where I know is getting hit often. And so I'm setting myself up to where they're going to have something to distract them if they're coming in or whatever, you know what I mean? Or, you know, whatever, whatever the case is, just so I'm, giving myself a fair chance because it's new. Right. And so it's, you know, I'm not going to think of all the things I need to do. It's like, you know, drawing becomes a little bit different, right? Like whenever you're going to, you know, do your draw cycle or whatever, making sure that maybe they're not looking or they're behind something or whatever the case is. So it's just a little bit more of a nuanced approach. It's, I think I'm going to, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying it. Um, you know, but I think I'm going to have some, some bumps along the way, but, uh, so this next question, yeah, I've, I've killed a few off the ground. Um, but well, you, you fail so much more than you, um, succeed you know yeah yeah that's what your percentages go way down yeah it's It's just some places you have to hunt off the ground you don't don't like it or not yeah and what i've kind of found for me it's like i've looked at some places that i think would be good ground setups just because no one else is hunting them for that reason you know because they're not able to get into a tree so they just kind of bypass it and what i've found is that they're signed there and so i'm like you know what i need to just kind of go for broke and try to see if I can make this work. You know, worst thing that can happen is that I, I screw it up and I'll learn something and, and, and I'll, you know, hopefully do better the next time. But, you know, cause I think some of these places year over will be decent because they're just not getting a lot of pressure. They probably get driven during rifle season, but they're probably not getting touched much, much other than that is what I'm kind of, what I'm kind of yeah. seeing. Yep. So, so the next question is uh more related to late season here. Um, this fellow asks, you know, do you think uh, mature, you know, public land bucks, you know, are on food in late season, and is it reliable to follow the bed to food pattern, you know, and cut them off between during that time of during that time of year? So, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on that, Dan? For you know, for late season, what's your oh, approach absolutely. to late season? Yeah. Well, I mean, late season is probably one of the the best times, if not the best time, to shoot a mature buck. Now, with that said, I've only shot in a few <laughs> in late season mainly because I'm usually tagged out. Right. That's, ter- um, that's terrible news. That's terrible news that you're already tagged <laughs> out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the, the years I haven't been tagged out, 
it's been some of the best time because um, it's kind of weird because you say that and some people probably raise an eyebrow because it's hit or miss. It kind of gets like uh, like Tim's haunting all year, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where you're either in them or you're not, right? You know, um, you, you can go to a property and it's a ghost town, and the next property will have all the deer in the area. They're really food oriented, and um, if you wait and do your timing right, the really cold days, at least in the north woods, you know, or the north country. Um, I mean, maybe you get down to southern states, it gets a little harder. But up here, if you start getting down to like 10 degrees or lower, those deer start coming on an hour or two hours before dark. And I'm talking the big ones too. Mm-hmm. And they'll go right to the food sources and it gets a lot easier to kill them. And, um, you know, late season can be pretty good. They get on a pattern where, you know, you know your patterns in early season, as we talked earlier, mm-hmm. might be four or five days. You got to hit that four or five days right. In late season, They'll sit on a bed to food pattern until, you know, you know, the food's gone or something bumps them. Mm-hmm. So really the, the key for that late season for me has been not rushing in for the kill, sitting right. back, watching what's going on, scouting from a distance, um, binoculars, um, checking uh, tr- tracks, trail crossings on roads, circling areas. But, um, you know, watching food sources from, with binoculars mm-hmm. and uh, watching with it, when you narrow in, watching the deer come in, don't run in there just to hunt. You say, okay, there's all kinds of sign I'm going to go in there and hunt. You really want to sit back and observe it first. See what the deer do, where they come from. Because a lot of times they'll come from someplace you don't expect. You think they're coming out of this wood lot hmm. and you look and they pop out of a fence line. And you're like, oh, if I would have went in there and hunted that spot, he'd have busted me. Right. You know? So now you know. And then a lot of times it's a hard approach or harder than you think. You got to use the terrain. You got to maybe you got to crawl a little bit through an area where they could see you, and then you can get back up and to get to a spot where they'll get to in daylight to shoot them. Um, but late season has been really good for me in that regard, mm-hmm. and uh, they are very, very patternable in late season. It's probably um, the best time to pattern a, a mature buck. Interesting. Tim, what about you, man, up uh, in, in, in the big woods, man? Are you uh, are you seeing similar things, or is it a little bit little bit different, given that the food sources are a little different? It's, uh, you know, it's different by us because, um, you know, during the, the, the late season, um, a lot of people who are around agriculture, the deer will herd up. Um, and then for hunters, it's kind of like a feast or famine thing, right? where you're either on them or you're not right you can mm-hmm. you can see 30 deer in a field all together but then you could check every other field and there's not you know there's not it's like all the deer in a square mile herd right. up together um in the in the north woods it's a little harder they do they do herd up um it, it it's a, it's a lot harder to hunt them though um the snow so deep by us yeah um if you're looking you know by december we might have you know, a foot to two feet of snow. So, I mean, um, you can track, I suppose, you know, you know, if it's during like muzzle loader or something, but, uh, as far as getting on them, yeah, it's, I mean, they're, and, and, you know, one thing I think a lot of people don't understand by us is, um, by Christmas, most of my bucks have already lost their horns. <laughs> so, which is, I mean, 
And we, we, we honestly don't know why yet. Um, like I have a theory, I think it has a lot to do with the testosterone and the low, low buck density where there's, there's not that competition. Right. So they're, they're getting ready for winter. So then they just drop their horns. Right. Yeah, I think so, it has to do with and, nutrition and, and, because they're dropping them here too. Yeah. And you see it, especially with yeah. the wounded ones or the stressed ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the, yeah, and that definitely has a lot to do with it too, because there's not as much food up by us, you know, it's, it's a lot different, you know, by the time it's late season, you got that woody browse, you know, is what they're eating in the cedars. Um, but like for by like down by Dan, um, you know, it, it's feast or famine, really. I mean, it's like you're either on them or you're not. But if you're on them, then you can start coming up with a plan. Right. And you can, you know, you can sit back and you can observe and you can glass and you can kind of figure out what time they're coming out, where they're coming from, um, and try to, you know, pick them off. Um, but you also got to remember the deer are going to be a little more on edge. Mm-hmm. They've already been chased for a few months. Yeah. So they so they have a little more, you know, pressure. They, they feel that. Um, so they're. But but their but their stomachs are driving them at that point. Right. Yeah. I so mean, I I definitely struggle during late season. For me, it's like if I don't have the freezer filled by that point, I'm usually in in bad shape. Um, because I've kind of run into what you both have said. It's like I was e- you're either on them or you're not. Um, and just I I've not. <laughs> Plainly put, I've not. Well, I've, well I've you not know, Jim Jim's haunted by me, and I mean, we we uh, what we do is we cover a lot of ground. I mean, a lot of the places yeah, won't yeah. have deer. It'll yeah. be a, a desert. And we just keep checking spots until we find them, uh, get yeah. on them. And, and there's there's issues with it, too, because, um, like, uh, uh, a lot of times, you, you know, maybe there's a spot, like you said, you got to get on the ground. Mm-hmm. And now the first deer out are, are, are does, and there's 20 of them. They're right. going to come hang around you, and what are you going to do? Right. You, yeah. you know, you can something's going to spook. You know, and, and, uh, I think of a hunt uh, a couple years ago where I was onto some really huge bucks. I had this huge group of deer, um, with, a, with, a, uh, a large number of mature bucks in it. There's like five or six mature bucks and a whole bunch of other deer and they're feeding in dogwood wood. And, uh, I was going in and trying killing them and I was walking up a human trail, a hiking trail and setting up off of that. And they were kind of putting up with my scent because of that. And I put a camera in there and I have pictures of all these big bucks. And, uh, I got in there and, uh, all them deer come in and then I got multiple bucks around me and multiple big ones. And, uh, the target buck comes walking right underneath my tree. The buck, uh, just, he wasn't quite blue and crack. He was like mid one sixties as mm-hmm. a 10 Jeez. and he gets past me and he turns broadside and he's at 10 yards quartering away and eating at the grass and stuff so i get on him i start pulling the bull back and i just get the bull back to my ear and uh eight pointer off to my side blows and runs and the buck that i'm aimed at as i'm pulling the trigger he runs and it's like it was like i could see it coming but i was already committed i was already touching off and uh luckily i completely missed him he ducked the arrow um but, uh, you know, it gets tough when you got uh, 50 sets of eyes around you. So, I mean, it's not as easy as I made it sound in the first, when I first mentioned it. Um, thinking back, I can think of all the problems I had trying to kill one. But getting on them is pretty easy. Right, right. Just, killing them is not in that situation. 
Yeah, because at that point, it's like because they're all yarded up and stuff. It's like you're right. It's like it's almost like hunting antelope at that point, where you have so many sets of eyeballs on you, you know, or hunting, you know, you know, rutting bulls, you know what I mean, elk, you know, with their herd, you yeah. know, with their harem around them and stuff like that. It's like it's almost you know becomes and impossible. not a leap in a tree, and you're trying to <laughs> right. look like a stick. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like and it's, re- and it's really cold, where everything is loud every time every movement you make. Yeah, you know, every everything is just that much louder. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So, all right. So that when we that one we covered. So the, the reality is is that there's some challenges. If you can find them, you can get on them. Uh, but there are some sets of challenges that kind of go that go with it that need to be people need to be mindful of. Um, so we we got three more questions, and then we are then we are wrapped. So this next question, this uh, this fellow writes, you know, I, I think simply put, what he's asking about here is hunting mornings in October. You know, he's saying, you know, for a guy that maybe has obligations, job or family or whatever, maybe the only time he can get out is during the morning, during early season. You know, he's asking for a little help as far as like, you know, what types of setups should he be looking for if he's going to hunt, you know, a morning in, uh, in during the early season? So, Dan, what what's your thoughts on that, man? Are you a, a morning in October kind of person? Is it, you know, is it something you recommend, you know, or if you were going to, how would you pull it off? Uh, in the mornings in October, I try to hunt um – uh, either downwind of bedding or I try to hunt back far enough in the trail going to bedding that, uh, that it's before they swing downwind, mm-hmm. um, which is what I like to do the most because that's the most predictable thing. Right. When you get to bedding, a lot of times they come in from downwind uh, mm-hmm. in the morning because they want to smell the bedding area. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of guys want to set up right over the top of a bed that's hard. Um, although Joe pulled it off last year on video. Yeah, I don't did. know if you saw that. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a good good video. Yeah, but it's really hard to do. And he had a unique situation where his wind was going over an open field, and the deer didn't want to circle the open field, so it circled right up against the fence where he was at going to the bedding. Right. And so it, it's a tough nut, but I mean, you're not going to kill one sitting on the couch waiting, wishing you could hunt in the evening. Right. If that's what you have to hunt, go out and, and do it. I yeah. mean, uh, what's the worst thing can happen? You, you enjoy a day in the woods. You know, yep. so, um, it is tough to kill them in the morning in October. Yeah. Now for me, I mean, if you can pick and choose your days and, and, uh, one of your issues might be the old lady wants some, uh, me and you time. Right. Or you got to go out and hold hands and take it to the fair or something. Right. Um, you might want to plan that in early October because about mid October, things start changing and mornings start getting a lot better. I start doing really good uh, with with my uh, morning hunts around October 15th is when I start seeing a lot more success on my morning hunts. Hmm. I mean, I, I think it still probably ain't as good as evenings, mm-hmm. but it starts picking up pretty good. So, I mean, I wouldn't burn out my, if I can hunt that time frame, I wouldn't burn out my best spots right. in the morning before that time frame. Right. Uh, you, you, you can also get into an area where there's uh, something going on. Like, uh, in, in early October, a lot of things happen. Like, uh, they might have a youth deer season. They might have a pheasant hunt, um, something like that. And you can get into, you, you know, an area and when they kick deer around, they're going to come into those bedding areas all day long. You know? Right. So um, Tim, Tim, what, what, what about you, man? Are you, uh, you you hunt mornings in October. If so, what's uh what's your approach to it? If it's early October, I usually save a lot of my hunts for the afternoon. Um, that's just situational where I got you know stuff to do, 
or I'm working, you know, um, I just don't have a lot of opportunity to hunt in the morning. If, if a guy, that's his, that's his only time to hunt. then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hunting, I'm going, you know, I'm, right. um, and, uh, you know, but like, like Dan said, mid October, um, you're, you're going to, you know, there's going to be some, some more day movement. Um, the scrapes will start opening up by me. And, uh, you know, for me, I could, you know, um, plan on some like all day sits, you know, like October 20th, you know, that, you know, last 10 days of October, those all day sits might actually pan out for me. Right. Um, I have a lot of daylight movement, uh, along scrape lines, um, of those perennial scrapes, uh, mature deer were coming out at, you know, between eight, eight o'clock in the morning and 11. So, I mean, you can easily get in there way before and get set up on them, which is, which is huge. Um, knowing that they, they, they come in that time of day. Um, and I've seen that pretty consistent the last, you know, four or five years in my trail cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they, you, you know, yeah, Jim, I I wanted to say um, when I used to hunt the North was a lot when I was younger. I noticed something different from up there to down here. I noticed a lot more um, early morning and even midday movement up there, even outside of rut frame. And I always wondered if that was probably. Uh, because of the predators or something at night, maybe they move more during the day. But um, mm-hmm. I did notice a, a definite difference between northern Wisconsin and southern Wisconsin as far as uh, daytime morning movement. So some of that could be regional, hmm. right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if it's you know in the southern part of the states um, when there's more pressure, it might be a lot different. The, you know, the in northern, you know, and I mean, we could just say big woods or we could say like the the northern, like the UP or northern Minnesota or Wisconsin. Um, yeah, that there's there's something to that where those mature bucks will, will it, it's not like they're wandering around, but um, they're they're a little more comfortable, you know, walking in the daylight. Um, there's fewer of them. So, um but if you're out, if you're out, you know, the more time in the stand, the better chance you have of one, you know, coming up on you. Um, I think, you know, I think in a lot of people think about the best time to hunt is in like, you know, November, which, which, you know, a lot of it is. Um, but I think they're missing out on that. Like the last two weeks of October is some of the best hunting of the year because those, those bucks are ramping up and they're getting ready. They're getting ready to chase those does. So they're stretching their legs, they're expanding their, their territories. Yeah, I honestly like that last two weeks of October more than I like the first two weeks of November. They're uh, frisky enough that they're moving pretty good, um, but they're not running around crazy. I mean, you can still pattern them. You can, a, a good hunter with a smart head on his shoulders can still get on deer and pattern them and not rely on luck. Right. So that's, yep. that, that's actually the perfect transition. Cause this next question is basically asking, you know, what is, you know, the Dan Enfault approach to, to hunting the rut? Like if you were to give someone advice on how to successfully hunt the rut, you know, what would your advice be or what would your, your approach be? Um, I'm, I'm not really, uh, too big on, um, big funnels, um, that are, you know, a ways away from bedding. Mm-hmm. I like little tiny funnels where buck bedding is close to doe bedding and getting in between them. I think you see more mature bucks. Um, I like walking around and finding fresh sign in uh, mid to late October and setting up on it because that's another thing is 
is, like I said about those deer being more patternable in late October than in November, there's, there's usually good rut sign. I mean, you'll see good rub lines where they're moving a lot if they're an aggressive animal. And uh, they'll tell tell where they're moving. And then if you can relate that to bedding, you can do pretty good. Um, but uh, for rut, I mean, uh, when I do all-day hunts, I like to start out the mornings uh, uh, near bedding. And then uh, after sunrise, I like to, to get up and um, uh, sit, sit a, a funnel between bedding and, and doe bedding. Because mm-hmm. I think they, they get up later morning and they go check on does, but they won't move far through open areas if they're mature. You know, right. so that's why I'm saying those tight little funnels and stuff that are not as uh, noticeable as what everybody else is hunting. Right. And, you know, then later afternoon, um, I kind of relate back to, you know, food sources and parallel trails where, the, you know, the bucks will be uh, uh, checking on does to see if they're hot. Like they'll, they'll, they'll parallel, uh, fields and stuff and mm-hmm. uh so i usually shift about three times a day um okay and scout around a little bit um and i do fairly well doing that um but i don't i don't camp out in one spot all day i think there's reasons deer move in different areas at different times mm-hmm. and i try to use my head about where they're moving and why and and move with them rather than sitting in a stand all day where they come through at 11 you know Right, if they're going to be there. there at eleven. Right, right, yeah. I was just going to say it's like be there when they're going to be there, not not you know waiting and hoping that they're going to be there all day. So yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Tim, what about you, man? What are your what's your approach for hunting the rut in the uh, in the big woods? I think it's important to know your does and where your doe bedding areas are. I think that's probably the the most important part of uh, maybe big woods is because I mean there isn't a lot of deer, so I mean like you know. Or like an area of you know six does, even just six does. That's huge. Um, but you can be there on them, or you're not. So mm-hmm. the rut can can be kind of like cyclical, where it will move through the woods. Like the ruts is going like certain areas, and sometimes it's good to camp out. Um, I I, I kind of go back and forth as far as all day sits or moving around. Um, I was, um, I grew up sitting, sitting all day long. That's how, that's how I was trained, I guess. I know mm-hmm. when I was younger, um, just, you know, rifle hunting, bow hunting, um, dad walks in the stand, he sits you on a bucket or whatever. And, and then he says, I'm, I'm coming back later. I'll come and get you. Right. All right. You sit there all day long. You don't, you don't wander around. Yep. Um, so I still have that. I have that in me a lot and I consider myself patient. I think that, okay, something might still come around the corner because I've had it for times where the rut will just, it'll, it'll just blow up on you. Right. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, like, boom, they're right there. And, and all of a sudden you got, you know, chasing, you have these does running through. Um, you know, I've almost, you know, like a couple of years ago, I, um, I actually had a snort wheeze at a buck who was chasing and he snort wheezed back at me <laughs> and he circled downwind. And I almost, I, you know, I, I almost, almost got a shot at him the point where he caught my thermal and then he kind of like stopped dead in his tracks and then it was kind of you know game was over at that point right but you know the rut the rut at that point it stumbled right upon me at that at that night you know which was i mean and i had been there i don't know six or seven hours probably that day i mean that wasn't you know i wasn't there all day but um but yeah you got you definitely got to move around though too 
you can't uh, you can't just think you know they're gonna always come to you. Right. Um, so you you do you got to know you got to know your spots, um, and it's uh, it's kind of a delicate situation where you make your decisions on where you're going to be, um, and when you make you know when you make a decision to move. Um, I'm always afraid like when I start breaking down, I'm like they're going to run up on me now. You know, if it's 11 o'clock, I feel like I'm, right. <laughs> they're gonna, I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to, you know what, if I leave, I'm never going to get them. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's like, well, what I'm doing isn't working either. So sometimes you just got to go and find them. You got to be a little more aggressive. You got to go out and do them, go and get him. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a toss up. I mean, and really it's situational. Yeah. No, um, I, I totally the, agree. The rut's a fun time. The, the rut is a fun time to hunt in the woods um, for big woods hunters sometimes, um, but it could be mostly miserable. Yeah. I mean, because you can spend like, in, 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 uh, you know, I always think it only takes a minute, right? It only takes a minute. Um, and they could be coming right around the corner, right? Yeah. That, that's hunting. Yeah. It only takes a minute. It only takes a minute. But, uh, there's a lot of minutes in between that minute in the next. <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And it will test you. It will yeah. test your patience. I mean, um, um, some guys they can't sit. I can sit. I can push myself, and I can I can weather through and beat myself up uh, and drive myself crazy. Um, but at the same time, I'll talk myself out of it and say, "I got to get the heck out of here. I got to go somewhere else. I got to, yeah. you know, this is not working." Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. The one big woods piece that I hunt, I think I t- I think I mentioned it to you when you and I were talking. It was the one year I hunted it ten days. I saw three deer in ten days. Yeah. You know, and it's just yeah par for the course, but it, like I could have, you know, in that area, I know there's big deer. And so that's like, you know, any one of those three deer that I had seen, they were all bucks could have been the biggest buck I've ever, I've ever seen, you know what I mean? So it's like, you just kind of put in your time. I think the other thing you hit on too, and I'd be curious, Dan, to see what your thoughts are on this. Like I've learned to rely somewhat on trail cameras in, in those settings over time. And I think this goes back to the first question that we had of letting them kind of sit all year and getting some annual data and starting to learn like when certain sections of those woods are going to turn on based on the does that are bedded there, because we've kind of figured out like, you know, what we've learned in this, this piece is that there's going to be a lot of, and Dan, this is, you know, things I think I picked up from you as well, but it's just kind of proven out in this particular area is that on those ridge tops, like we're seeing a lot, like we'll see a lot of sign on those ridge tops and there'll be, you know, significant trails up there. And then when we, when we get into really thick areas, because a lot of this area is clear cut, maybe on both sides of the ridge, you know, and the only place they can really move is on the top. And there'll be doe beds like all along the top of, of that, of that ridge, you know? And so we'll hang a camera and there, there will always be, you know, a handful of scrapes or a primary scrape area on those, on those ridge tops. And we'll hang a camera there. And over the years, like what we've seen is like, there's a small window of like four days during November and maybe three days during December when the does that haven't been bred come back in that all the bucks in the area, in that general area, hit that scraper on that ridge top or in that general area. And that is it. I mean, literally you can hang a camera there for, you know, the other 10 months out of the year and not get a single deer on it. But during those specific six days, based on when those does are going to come in and what we've started to figure out was like, we can start to learn what ridges or ridge systems, I should say, because they're usually a couple ridges kind of together that they're using, what ridge systems are turning on during what period of, of, you know, late October, early November, and then into December. So, you know, have you guys kind of seen similar things like where you're kind of, patterning not just specific deer but whenever they're when they're popping when they're going to cycle yeah you know i've seen that uh, um in wisconsin here there's different 
peak ruts just in the different regions. Mm-hmm. Like where I'm at in southeast Wisconsin, I would say it really kind of peaks here around uh, October 31st, right around Halloween. Mm-hmm. And when I get to western Wisconsin, it, it more peaks around like the 7th or so. Mm-hmm. Then when I'm hunted down in Iowa, it might even be like the 13th, 14th, 15th, you know. Yep. Um, you could you'd almost stagger your hunts and hunt different areas to get the peak ruts. Yeah. But it seems like when you talk to somebody, um, they've got a, a locked-in thought on when rut is, um, and just generally everywhere. Like they want to plan their trip around rut, but really it, it varies from area to area, and it seems to repeat itself year after year. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I can think back of a, a, a doe that used to always come into estrus on a place I hunted where that doe lived in a certain area, and every year it would come into estrus early, and we'd get some real heavy rut act. Uh, uh, activity in mid-October on, until some jackass shot the doe. But uh, <laughs> we had like three years of that, you know. Right. Um, and it, if that's what happens with that deer, I mean, that's you're going to turn your woods on. It's not as predictable as people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the rut happens the same time every year, regardless of people saying that, uh, you know, it has to do with the moon phase or it has to do with this or that or whatever. Right. What the moon phase might do is put the rut during, you know, more of the activity at night. Right. You know, but they, they, they breed at the same time. And that's, that's provable fact because of when the fawns are born. Right. Track it right back to the, to the dates they were, they were bred. Uh, not only that, but if you look into how, uh, deer urine is made, mm-hmm. um, do you know the process for that? I do not. Uh, the way that they get uh, fresh doe and heat urine before rut, so that you have it for the rut, is they put they they have does in captivity, and they've learned that when they go into estrus has to do with the amount of light in the day. Mm-hmm. So it's right down to the exact day that the, the light amount is a certain amount, and they do it in captivity by turning the lights on and off to that duration. Hmm indoors well and they can get the the dose to come into heat four times a year just by the timing of turning the lights on and off wow yeah so it has to do with uh the amount of light in the daytime so it really happens at the exact time every year right yeah that that makes but that time varies region to region if that makes sense right yeah totally like i I totally get that the one thing that i kind of picked up on and i forget who i learned learned this from um it might have been Steve Bartilla or it might have been one of the guys from the MSU Deer Lab. But does pass their um their in estrus date onto their doe fawns. And so since doe families live together like generation after generation, if you know where a doe family lives and they come in, you know, and they cycle in, say on the thirty first of the of, you know, October, you know, those doe fawns, those offspring will also cycle in at the same time. So, you know, that that doe family or that doe bedding area, if it's still you know, if the same doe family is living in it, you know, generation over generation, you should be able to f- kind of time that cycle period, you know, within like a two to three day window is what they're saying. And it, kind of going back to what you're saying, Dan, is like based on that light, like, you know, taking into account anything that might be different there, you know, you'll have like a two ish day window that they'll, they'll come in at that same time. And that's what we've seen on trail cameras. Like when we've run them, you know, on these big wood settings of like things popping at specific dates, you know, within like a two day window. Or whatever you see the similar stuff in the in the big woods there, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
the the trail cameras are important um and keeping an eye on them and um for historic value and and hang on to them you know um keep them you know keep them in filed filed away in your computer or hard drive or whatever um because you're gonna you're gonna see the same tendencies year after year um like dan said you know it's it's the daylight you know and that's not gonna change um when those you know and and your sign i mean if you you just read your woods the sign is going to start popping up at the same time of year in the same same places that you know um year after year whether it's the same bucks or not i mean they um they learn from each other you know those those younger bucks Mm -hmm. are gonna they're gonna you know as as the hierarchy changes you know those bucks are gonna you know rotate through the hierarchy right yeah that makes sense kind of like these young bucks are learning from the old buck in fault right <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> awesome guys. Well, hey, I know we've been on here for just about the two hour mark here, so I want to be sensitive to your time and give you some uh give you some time in the evening back uh to to spend some time with the with the with the family, the lady friends, or in Dan's case, maybe a couple of the raccoons that are hanging out at his house and might have to since they're looking longingly in, in the window at him, waiting for his attention. Um but Dan, I appreciate you um doing this entire series with me, man, this has been awesome. You know, we'll have to figure out maybe something to do in the future again together. Uh, I know I've picked up a ton, you know, have for years from you. Um, you know, I know I've gotten a lot of comments from folks that have been listening that have been picking up a lot of stuff and really enjoying the, enjoying the series that we've done. So I just want to say thank you again for everything you've done, you know, not just for me, but for the hunting community and the, the information you put out there and how willing you are to share it. So always appreciate you, man. Well, thanks. You bet. And Tim, buddy, I appreciate you uh, you coming on. We're going to have to do a solo mission here at some point and dig into some more big wood stuff. I, uh, we'll definitely have you back on uh, for uh, for a follow-up if you're, if you're game. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Awesome, fellas. Well, thanks for joining, man. I appreciate you guys. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, Head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd do those few things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.